Woo, the Golden Stallion is here for you, baby. And just coming off, boy, I'll tell you, <laughs> some serious hotness. Uh, you know, you are what you're going to get here. I, I, there's some stuff I want to talk about that I don't want to wait until like the next Wednesday Q&A where, you know, I noticed with Patreon, with the Wednesday Q&A, I, I get to do some shop talk here and there with the with the patrons, which I consider you to be really executive producers of Sovereign Tech. Um, but I want to get into some of that. But I mean, first, let's just say, yes, this is going to be your review of season two of Castlevania on Netflix. And I got to say, you know, knowing that uh, the upcoming season eight, right, of, uh, of Voltron Legendary Defender, since that show is coming to a close in December, in just about a month, uh, you know, we need a new greatest show on television or quote unquote on television, you know, whatever that means today. I mean, like, it's a Hulu show, a television show is blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like, like, how does that work? Um, but as far as like, what's the new greatest show on TV, you know, with with Voltron coming to a close, I got to go with Castlevania. I think that this is just I mean, this is wild. Of course, I'm kind of it's kind of cart before the horse here in, in letting you know just how great I thought season two was. Uh, but really, this is the best show on television hands down. In fact, I think over time it could best Voltron, uh, you know, just toe to toe, even if they're running at the same time. Um, I, wow. And we I mean, I'll, I'll say this outright. We already know we're going to get a season three. So it's not like I'm talking about something that has to end. And you better believe you're going to get a review of season three when that happens, even though I don't think that's going to air until 2019. But that said, I do want to get into some shop talk. And first things first, uh, thank you to everyone, all the patrons that have upgraded to the $5 level um, of, you know, you're, you're now a dilettante of the Triple Black Arts, which is actually pretty fitting, perhaps, <laughs> for what we're going to talk about with a lot of our review of Castlevania Season 2. And look, I'm not just going to say, oh, holy shit, the show is great. Like, there are some really, really wild things um, about this show that deserve a lot of exploration. Okay, but I want to say thank you to all those that did upgrade actually to the five dollar uh you know to the five dollar reward tier for sovereign text patreon um and with that i asked a lot of you who you got you know as part of the five dollar reward tier you get access to the user podcast and i asked on the wednesday q a i said was you know if because i it wasn't showing up so i have like a master podcast feed um, for patreon that i have access to that should get everything because i'm the creator Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but which one the creator of genesis one or genesis two <laughs> anyway uh since i'm the creator like i should get everything and i wasn't seeing as well as some other people were telling me they weren't seeing um the user the first episode of the user podcast show up in their feed and so i didn't know what was going on there um and i looked into it some of you said you did get it some of you you know you, you responded to my uh, uh, uh call on on the recent Wednesday Q&A actually which came out on Thursday and uh and you told me you know that that yeah some of you got it some of you didn't well i found out that actually if you just re if you re-enter your patreon podcast feed into whatever podcast app you're using it will show up so if you didn't get it in your podcast feed that's how you can make it appear um it's just re-entering the podcast feed into your whatever podcast app that you happen to be using, and that'll happen. So just so you know, that you know, putting that out there, I'll probably mention on the Wednesday Q&A, but uh, I want to get that out there, uh, you know, that info out to those, uh, you know, to all of you right away, uh, those that are part of the, those that are dilettantes of the Triple Black Arts. <laughs> uh, anyway, so there's that. Um, also, another thing, uh, a lot of people are, I've got a few people that uh, yesterday, uh, as this will be getting released the day previous, I had released um, the second half of chapter six of emotions of normal people for Sovereign Tech First University. Uh, a quick thing on that. A lot of people are asking me like already this morning. I saw it where they're saying, hey, you know, like like what's the deal with this book? Well, let me tell you. OK, so now that we're into chapter seven, this is when the book starts getting really, really meaty and really, really good. Um, I just want to say quickly. So. You know, this is a book from the 1920s. It used to be, you know, today now people will just like read a blog post and consider it fact. It used to be that if you were making kind of the, uh, well, the scale of human psychology and philosophy that William Moulton Marston is going for with his book, The Emotions of Normal People, um, or the book Emotions of Normal People, when you're going to that scale, 
you used to have to start from the beginning. Like you really had to prove yourself kind of from, you know, from the atom up. Okay. A-T-O-M. From the atom up. Uh, you couldn't get away with bullshit that like Hans Hermann Hoppe or, you know, some other people pull where like they're really not, you know, they're, they're not starting from like a really serious scientific basis or something like that. You used to have to go really, really, I mean, you had to start from the beginning and work your way. So six chapters of Emotions of Normal People is you know, Marston making his case from the atom up, you know, making a very scientific case and using a lot of quoting from a lot of other scientists of his day to back up his information and so on. And he's trying to also disprove he's also doing the great work of or what used to be considered like, I mean, really, you have to understand for philosophy to be taken seriously, you had to start from the ground up. Um, there's a reason Ayn Rand as good as, you know, small O objectivism may be in some cases, okay, or, you know, some of these other guys that, that you know, libertarians really look up to, as, as interesting or logical as what some of them may claim is, they never get taken seriously in philosophical circles, not because they're anarchists. Anarchists get fully taken seriously in philosophical circles. Uh, I mean, like, they really, really do. The thing is, is that a lot of them, you know, like Rothbard and so on, they don't start from the ground up. Okay. They, they take certain things, you know, on, well, I don't want to say on faith, but as, as fact, as, you know, as this is how it is. And, and, but they never really build from the ground up and they just, they don't. And when you read actual, like, like more, I don't want to say more serious, cause I'm not saying they're not serious, but when you read more serious philosophical texts, you know, they have, like, even if you read John Locke or some of these other guys, you know, they they have to start from like the very beginning. That's why these books were always so huge back in the day. OK, it was because they had to start from from the atom up. OK, just like with user podcast with user podcast. I am, you know, I'm starting from the beginning of the universe. Granted, it's an abridged version and I'm not like getting into all of the detail and I'm not exactly starting from the atom up, but I am coming more from a position of time. And in that, you know, you got to start from the beginning or was there even a beginning of time, right? Like that, that, that's, that's where it has to go. So, you know, it's important to, you know, to start from there and then, you know, make your case building up from that. So the first six chapters of the, of emotions of normal people is Marston doing it the old fashioned way and the way that you get taken seriously. Now he still never necessarily got taken seriously. In fact, his work just ended up getting bastardized. But regardless, um that's if you're wondering like why boy this the first six chapters they seem kind of boring or not as exciting as the introduction was or that like wow it's so technical blah blah blah. Well you you used to you had to do that to be respected in academic circles. That's how you used to have to do things. Okay? There's a reason that uh, for example, that Max Stirner is taken completely seriously and widely respected and regarded. I mean, he might, he might, the people may think that they're debunking him, right? Other philosophers might think they're debunking him, but he gets taken seriously because his, you know, his texts start from the beginning, start from the atom and work their way up. Okay. So that's, that's the deal with the first six chapters. But now, now that, that Marson has made his case, when you get into chapter seven of emotions and normal people, you know, now, now it really takes off and you can, you know, you're talking about the application of the science that he is laying out. So if you're wondering, wow, this seems kind of boring. Like, are you really going to go through this whole thing? Yeah. Well, now is when it gets really good. So, so keep that, keep that in mind. Now, last, last bit of business, since we're talking, <laughs> since we're talking entertainment here, since this is your review of uh, season two of Castlevania, um, I, I heard news the other day that just blew my fucking mind and, and I am, I am not okay with this. Uh, and I'm going to tell it to you here. So supposedly now look, my favorite director is Ridley Scott. Okay. Uh, I mean, actually my favorite director is Paul W.S. Anderson, who is, has honestly done a lot of side work to Ridley Scott's classics. Uh, for example, he did Soldier, which is a side quill, if you will, to uh, to Blade Runner. Um, you know, he's he's done a lot of stuff. I mean, like I, I the guy just doesn't get the respect he deserves, even though he does do stinkers. I, I admit to that. Um, but he, a lot of his movies are just I think they're tremendous. So anyway, but my but otherwise, usually I like to say just so that nobody gets confused. All right. Who's your favorite director? I'll just say Ridley Scott. I'll just come out and say it. And, and this guy is has been so prolific, continually prolific, um, you know, and he's 
pushing 80. Like, it's pretty amazing. Anyway, uh, it was announced that he is going to be making Gladiator 2. Yeah, <laughs> the sequel to Gladiator. Honestly, I, so here's the thing is that now, okay, now you ask me a question. Well, hey, Stallion, what's your favorite movie of all time? Well, my favorite movie of all time is Gladiator. I, you know, so I love Gladiator. I mean, I say it without reservation that it's my favorite movie of all time. I don't want this. <laughs> I, I don't want the sequel at all. There's no point to this. This is downright stupid. Um, are there ways that this could be done that could make it good? Uh, really, the only way that this movie could be any good. So there's two theories running as far as what it could be about. One is, is that it's actually about, um, who's it? L- Lucretia's son or whatever, uh, or not Lucretia, uh, Lucilla, right? Lucilla, the, you know, the brother to, um, to Commodus or I mean, the, sorry, the sister to Commodus. Oh shit. Anyway, uh, Lucilla, like her son, uh, was, a uh, Lucius, Lucius Verus. It'd be about him growing up and I don't know, I guess maybe becoming a gladiator or something, I, whatever. Um, I don't want to see that movie because that sounds like it would just hit all the same beats as the original gladiator. And I just I don't need that. I need something fresh uh, because the movie gladiator was just so fresh. I mean, there's a reason that it's considered such a classic by just about everybody. Um, the other one is supposedly there was a script that had been going around about a decade ago that had to do with somehow Maximus coming back to life, you know, Russell Crowe's character, Maximus coming back to life. I'd kind of watch that, but that, I don't know, that that gets into all kinds of realms of strange, right? <laughs> I, I don't want this. I, I, I think this is ridiculous. Like it, it's, it's just straight up, just, just flat out ridiculous. And then pretty much, I think in the same day, they announced that Bad Boys 3 would be coming out. I, I don't give a rat's ass about that either. That's just not my kind of film. So anyway, <laughs> I don't have really anything else to add on that. But just no, no to Gladiator 2. But yes to Castlevania Season 2, baby. And of course, yes to what we now know is already going to be Castlevania Season 3. Um, I imagine, as, as far as I've heard anecdotally, most people watch Season 2 of Castlevania, like they watch the entire damn thing. It was only eight episodes, but they watched the entire thing like in one day. I mean, they, they just jumped on it. And I think so many people were excited about this. Um, I mean, this is really, really white hot stuff. And the Castlevania series, which started way back in 1986, you know, on the NES or on the NES, uh, it is well-deserving. I mean, like this is, you know, it's a legendary video game series and for fuck's sake, it deserves a legendary, uh, animated series or TV series. Might as well just call it a TV series. Fuck the fact that it's animated. It doesn't matter. I mean, there's, there's swearing right and left. This gory as hell. There's jokes about penises and everything. And I mean, literally jokes about penises in it. Uh, there, there is no reason to just like talk about this as an animated series. This is as adult and as serious as a heart attack. Now, I will warn uh, spoiler alerts because there's a lot of stuff that needs to be talked about that you can't do without spoilers, I think. Um, so spoiler alerts, ahoy in this one. Um, but, you know, that said, uh, w- wow. <laughs> so this picks up right after uh, right after season one, which was a very short season, only what, like three, four episodes. Uh, and I mean, it was pretty much like watching a movie more or less. And, uh, again, this had eight episodes of fuller season and so much happens inside of those eight episodes, but this is definitely like season one gave us great setup, you know, and season two was able to just run with it and it didn't waste any time. Um, well, okay. The first, I want to say like the first three or four episodes are a little on the slow and more methodical side. Okay, but then, you know, you hit you hit episode five and into into episode eight and it just hits the ground running like that. That's when it really does. And it's just action packed um, and tremendous, beautifully animated action. I mean, the animation, once again, is stunning. It feels there's I felt like there were certain points where the detail was a little less than what season one had, but. It, it still looked phenomenal. Like, I mean, it, it's really a gore, it's gorgeous animation, even though the only thing I don't like is the as far as the animation goes, Trevor Belmont, kind of our main character, even though really you have three main characters. Of course, you know, this is very much the story. I mean, you have Dracula, who's the villain and certainly a main character. But then you have Alucard, uh, you have Sypha and, you know, and Trevor Belmont 
who well we'll talk more about that in a minute anyway so trevor belmont like his scruff or his like half beard it's just these weird squiggles and i I don't know it it feels like it 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 cheapens um what you're seeing you know like like it it works it gets the point across but then at the same time i I don't know i don't like it (laughs) it it throws me off when i see it uh it really does but of course this season did not just concentrate on trevor belmont as much as perhaps season one did uh if anything i felt like the character of sypha that she was really the hero and main character in this story and she was also the one very much forwarding the narrative um and and I, I couldn't be happier about it. You know, uh, the character of Sypha in the general Castlevania series has appeared at various points. Now, of course, they've pretty much been running with this. This is a it's a it's definitely a play on Castlevania three as far as like what video game is what you know, which which Castlevania games is based off of. It's definitely based off of or definitely Castlevania three. You're getting sprinkles of Symphony of the Night in there. So which Castlevania three and Symphony of the Night are considered two of the greatest games in the Castlevania series, if not the greatest. And, you know, maybe like with Castlevania three or Symphony of the Night. And then also now we're getting in some sprinklings in of uh, of was it Lament of Innocence, the the, the PlayStation two uh, game for that that was, it was kind of the first PlayStation 2 game um for, of Castlevania and that's a tremendous game. I mean just a brilliant brilliant fucking game. So they're basing it absolutely on three of the greats. You real they really really are and and I couldn't be happier about that. Um but Sypha would appear in various points within within some of these games. She would even be in was she was she was in Mirror of Fate and so on and Judgment. Um and so you kind of get different stories of what role she plays, but she does. I mean, generally, the idea with Sypha is that she is the love interest of Trevor Belmont and she does marry him. And she is the mother of Simon Belmont. And of course, Trevor's the father of Simon Belmont, who would end up being, you know, the, the protagonist of Castlevania one and maybe the most well-known uh, and, and of course, Castlevania two and so on uh, would be the most well-known Belmont of the bunch. And, and again, kind of the originator of the cast in the Castlevania series. So and and you definitely get in season two, you get to see the starts of the love interest. And, and of course, at the towards the end of the season, it's very explicit. Uh, the the love interest between Trevor uh, and Sypha. Uh, and it and it's it's really well done. I love it. And, and again, they they really give Sypha center stage throughout this whole thing. And she really has some of the best quotes throughout. So anyway, this ends up being, you know, Dracula is continuing his campaign after the death of his wife. Um, being killed by uh, by the church, you know, by the Inquisition, effectively. And he is going on the attack and he wants to wipe out every human out there. Uh, Now, he isn't exactly telling his vampire brethren that he plans on killing all humans and that actually, you know, I mean, well, he does tell them that he plans on genocide, but he doesn't tell them that you know, this does like he claims, oh, I've got stores of blood that you're going to be able to live off of and animals and everything. he doesn't explain to them that, you know, you're all just going to die off. And it's pretty much Dracula is going on a scorched earth policy. Not that just every human's going to die, but also every vampire will die thereafter, um, you know, in, in short order. Uh, even though he does have a couple of forge masters, which are interesting characters to bring in, um, that they there, there's Hector. Uh, and then the other one is oh, not <laughs> Godbrand is hilarious. <laughs> I mean what a great great fucking character but uh but hector and isaac are the two forge masters who are humans which it seems like he's saying they're going to be allowed to continue to live on but anyway none of that necessarily matters um i think even a lot of the overall storyline doesn't really matter even though it's very well done and and like the interaction between dracula and the other vampires including the entrance of uh, the character carmilla uh, who is probably going to be the villain going forward because she survives this season two as to where spoiler alert Dracula does not um, at least not in this sense is, is Dracula going to come back well that's a that's a whole other can of worms um, but they don't they don't really give you any hint of that sort of thing within this 
Um, but Carmilla is there. I mean, and and just just hilarious banter uh, be, between between all of these characters, uh, all the vampires anyway. And and it's all amazingly most of it's happening within Dracula's castle itself, uh, which is impressive because it's really just interplay on a very very small uh, stage, effectively. Because they don't spend a whole ton of time like really traversing the earth. You know, they're not even going around Wallachia much and they end up going to another uh, area anyway, because, of course, Dracula's castle can move. It can transport itself um, using this engine. OK, not necessarily. It doesn't appear that it uses magic. It uses some kind of science to where it can it can move. Um, and there's the discovery of uh, the Belmont legacy or the Belmont library uh, that that, you know, has all of this wild you know, uh, well, all of the collected knowledge of the Belmont, the generations of Belmont uh, uh, heritage and everything. And that was that was really wild. And then, of course. Well, anyway, it ends off with, yeah, Dracula gets killed. I mean, because there's so much more to talk about. The, the story isn't even the big deal, even though, like I said, it's well done. The action. Tremendous. Uh, like Alucard, you know, who's the son of Dracula and his now dead wife. Um, so he's like half human and, you know, he, he's a vampire, but he can actually like he can be exposed to the sun and all this. Uh, but like he has that really cool sword that he sort of just has like float around him that he doesn't even really hold. And I mean, there's so many cool like Alucard is such a great character. Um, there is so much humor in this. In fact, it's written by Warren Ellis, of course, the legendary Warren Ellis. And you really get his flavor throughout this whole thing. Um, it is so damned funny, uh, darkly funny at points. And also, as I said before, it is adult funny. Like this is un- undoubtedly not a kid show, like not even close. OK, it is unabashedly adult and and it is just well done. Warren Ellis uh, writes like no other. And, and the humor lands every time. It is always, always funny when the jokes drop. Like Alucard is sort of like darkly kind of emo humorous in a way um, and just always so calm. He never really yells or anything. He just has that that really, you know, kind of plotting voice um, that that is both sexy and can also be very funny and serious at the same time and also sad and tragic. Um, and, and there, there, you know, in episode seven, when you get to that, there's some very tragic shit, like when Dracula is, and, and, you know, that's something else I like too. So I'm going to talk about the end in a second here, but I like that pretty much the storyline comes to an end in episode seven, like, or the, the main crux, the climax hits in episode seven with the death of Dracula. Um, I mean, and there's just this really tear jerking moment when Dracula, uh, he's fighting Alucard and he's about to kill his own son. And then the the fight ends up in the part of the Dracula's castle where it was Alucard's room when he was growing up. And Dracula just has a moment and just like stops and just cries and says, oh, my God, I'm going to kill my own son. You know, and, and what he's like, what am I doing? And blah, blah, blah. And of course, Alucard ends up killing him. And, and of course, the claim is, is that, look, my father died when my mother died. You know, like my father's been dead for a long time in reality, you know, and, and it's a, re- it's really, really powerful stuff. And that's, you know, I think to, to make the claim that something is the greatest at any given point, you know, the greatest TV show or greatest movie or something like that. I really think to make that claim, you ha- it has to be something that explores every emotion within the human condition. Every aspect of the human condition has to be there. And this has it. There are just, you know, where you, I mean, you want to cry too. You want to laugh. You, I mean, it's got it all, you know, and there's points where it's downright sexy and it is sexy. Um, I mean, you don't exactly get sex, but it's hot. You know, it's really, really hot. Uh, and there's some there's some great, you know, there's also a lot of, uh, uh, you know, great callbacks and flashbacks as well to that expand upon the story overall that we sort of would get hinted at within season one. Uh, you get to know, learn a lot more um, about, you know, Dracula's wife and Alucard's mother, um, which is, which is interesting. So anyway, all of this ends off. What I was saying was really great about this is that season seven gives you the climax or I'm sorry, episode seven gives you the climax. And then episode eight is kind of an aftermath, sort of a epilogue to it. And I love having that. That, you know, because we're I think the average animated series or even TV show would just end or even or movie would end with, okay, you know, 
they kill Dracula and then it's over. And maybe the, you know, the heroes go off into the sunset. No, we get a whole episode of epilogue of what's going to come next or what's what happens to these characters after the fact and so on. And it's beautiful. I think that that's brilliant to have that. Um, the only other show that or what I think actually. OK. So the real greatest episode in or greatest show in television history is Babylon 5. I've, I've been saying that for years. My opinion has not changed on that, and nor could I ever imagine it changing. But that's the show that did that as well, where it had a real epilogue. In fact, it had a couple of them, not just one. Uh, you really got you got to do like, you know, OK, Earth, Earth in the shadows and everything. All that's, you know, all the enemies get get held back or defeated or whatever and, and chased off. Um, what happens after the fact? You really got that within Babylon 5 itself. I don't mean the sequel show Crusade or any of the movies. I mean, you really got that within self-contained within uh, the series itself, and it was really well done. Uh, maybe that's what tipped me off to the concept of a television series having an epilogue where you get to see what happens after. You know, And I just think that that's so important. Um, it's something that we always wanted, honestly, with Star Wars. With Return of the Jedi, we don't really get an epilogue. You know, until uh, back in the day in the 90s, until we got the Timothy Zahn books. And even that wasn't really an epilogue. You know, you wanted that. What happens with these characters now? You know, like, what do they do? Do they start building the new Republic? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, eventually you'd get it. And now we kind of have it. But I mean, even with with Disney's with with what Disney is doing, we still don't exactly get it. it done. I don't know. Anyway, I don't. this isn't about Star Wars. So, yeah, that episode eight of this season is supremely well done and so important and it's calm. There's no real act. There's some action to it that you get, but there's, there's not like crazy amounts of action or anything. And it's just a calm exploration of where are these characters going to go? Where are they going? And honestly, you could have stopped with this. You could have stopped season two could have just ended it. And we would have had this beautiful little TV series called Castlevania that we could, you know, rewatch going into the future. But to have a season three is, is fantastic. Anyway, so season two ends with pretty much Alucard uh, because Sypha to defeat Dracula, you know, like they realize, Hey, we have to trap the castle. We can't let the castle Dracula's castle get away and transport away. And so she brings it. She learns within the Belmont library how she learns various magics and whatnot uh, to to be able to actually trap and lock down the castle. And she does so by bringing it right to the uh, the Belmont library and she puts it right on top of it. Um, And this is really cool because after Dracula dies, so Alucard inherits Dracula's castle, which has all of his scientific knowledge in it. But then also. Trevor Belmont says you also, you know, you are I, you know, I bequeath you the Belmont lands, which it includes underneath the castle. Now, the Belmont library, which has all of this magic and, you know, and all this other wild knowledge uh, within it. And so and, and in fact, this is going to get into what I really want to talk about with this show. Trevor says, you know, you get both of these as above, so below. That's the exact quote that he gives within that talking about, you know, as above in Dracula's castle, so below. And he's he's referencing the Belmont Library and that like this is the the culmination of knowledge, science and magic, uh, which is a wild, wild concept to lay out there that I think most people, even adults that would watch this, they wouldn't grasp what's being laid out in this. OK, but it's really like that's really cool. I can't wait for season three. I want more of whatever the fuck Alucard is going to discover. And, you know, what is the culmination of this combination of the, you know, the of Dracula's legacy and the Belmont legacy as far as like just, you know, the books and all that, all that knowledge. Um, I fuck. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's such a wild thing to explore. And this show is not afraid to explore the occult or black magic or more wilder aspects of science, shall we say. And this is something I talked about. If you listen to the season one review that I did of Castlevania, I said somebody's really, really got their their finger uh, on the pulse, uh, shall we say, as far as, um, you know, now Adi Shankar, who did the show, I think this guy's brilliant. Um, I feel a kinship. Uh, instantaneous kinship with Adi Shankar and the work that he does, because it a lot of it really feels like if I were in charge of these franchises, it's exactly what I would do. And the, I mean, with everything that he does, like it, a lot of it really feels like like he gets my style in a very real sense. I might be a little more corny or cheesy in what I would create. 
but he really I really think he he gets it. Adi Shankar is is just brilliant. Now, I don't know if he if it's him or if it's Warren Ellis uh, that is really laying out a lot of the more, uh, shall we say, magical aspects within this. And it wouldn't surprise me because Warren Ellis, of course, is best known as a comic book writer. Um, I mean, he is also a screenwriter, obviously, uh, but, you know, he, he's done some of the some of the really, really big stuff, you know, Transmetropolitan, Global Frequency and so on. Uh, now, a lot of comic book writers, not a lot, but a lot of the big ones consider themselves to literally be and I want to be careful when I talk about this, consider themselves to literally be magicians. OK, I'm not, I don't know if I've ever heard that Warren Ellis considers himself that. Um but you could take Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, like these guys really, they genuinely consider themselves to be magicians of a type, or I guess maybe they would want to call themselves adepts. Okay. Based upon whatever, you know, school they happen to be practicing. Um, I mean, and this goes to some, some, you know, wild places. I mean, and, and they're not joking, you know, like, like Grant Morrison considers some of his uh, uh, comic book series to be genuine sigils. Like they, they are magic sigils that he's put out into the world. Um, Alan Moore has literally put a curse on anything Watchmen, you know, like the movie Watchmen. He put a curse on that. Uh, I mean, that's how now I'm not saying that that like there is an actual curse on the movie, but I am telling you that these guys really believe this shit uh, and they're really into it. And I am intrigued. I don't know if it's Adi Shankar or if it's Warren Ellis, because he is the writer that is lacing Castlevania with some pretty high level stuff as far as uh, magic goes, black magic, whatever. But someone is and oh, this this is a I don't talk about this much, so I, I don't I don't know how far I want to go with this. Um, but wow. Uh, I mean, it's like it's right on. This is not stuff that you'd necessarily like read in a book somewhere. This is not your Harry Potter bullshit or I'm not saying Harry Potter's bullshit. I, I get why people like it. Uh, this is not, you know, your regular Hollywood, you know, aspects of magic. Like there are there's some really high level occult stuff being laid out in this. And I think it's great. Like, I, I, I love it. I'm glad that it's there. Um, but that said, you know, when you read occult works, one of the things you learn is, is that if you know this sort of stuff, you don't talk about it. And someone's playing with fire here, (laughs) I feel like, (laughs) because I think they're breaking their own rule in that they are telling people about this stuff. It's it's very odd. Uh, But but there's so much in this. Um, In fact, you get constant references to Enochian magic. Uh, that that is when they're going through the you know a lot of the series or a lot of the season two when they're going through the Belmont Library. Saifa, uh, she's constantly talking about Enochian magic. Um, then she starts talking about the Adamic language, the Adamic language, which is in reference to Adam. And she says it explicitly that this, you know, because uh, Alucard says, I've never heard of this Adamic. You know, what's Adamic? What, what does that mean? And she says it's the original language spoken by Adam and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, it's the language that God eliminated you know, at the you know Tower of Babel to keep humanity from cooperating and working with each other. Now, Saifa is part of a order of monks called the Speakers. Now, at first, when you hear monks, you instantly think that somehow, you know, they're they're like worshipers of God or something like they're the Christian in some sense. Not at all. <laughs> in fact, again, this is very explicit stuff. In fact, I've really I've almost never heard anything like this in any medium of entertainment. Uh, that's that's part of what I'm saying is so shocking when I watch this and I go, whoa, somebody like I said, somebody's playing with fire here. Uh, but she you know, there's a point where she I, I forget exactly what the situation is when they're in the uh, uh, Belmont Library. But Saifa says you know, oh, yeah, you know, we're, we're the speakers, which is her, her her order, her, you know, the order of monks that she belongs to. She says the speakers are the enemy of God. That's exactly what she says. The speakers are the enemy of God. We, She says we live in cooperation and hide our stories inside ourselves so he cannot strike them down in jealousy. And, and then, like, something happens within the library and, like, it's getting attacked by some of Dracula's forces. And, she, like, she instantly goes, she says, see, God hates me. <laughs> And it's amazing to I mean, that's that's almost very Gnostic where the idea that there's this demiurge, that there's this God 
who actually created the earth and that God is the enemy, right? Um, I mean, it's, it's sort of getting into that, but clearly Sypha is not Gnostic. Okay. Because, and you know that because she ends up, first off, she falls in love with Trevor and it's not clear that they have sex or that they kissed, but you know, if she's going to be the mother of Simon Belmont, well, they have to have sex. And, you know, Gnosticism, Gnosticism has a asceticism to it. Like they, they don't they don't give into the carnal pleasures of life. Uh, so, you know, the, she's not a Gnostic, but she's clearly laying out some really um, what would be called misotheism. OK, which so she's a misotheist, which means that she, you know, like, kind of like a misanthrope where you hate humanity. Well, there's such a thing as misotheism. It's rare. It's not something talked about a lot. In fact, the only other time I think it's ever discussed much in entertainment would be more with like the Klingons and Star Trek. Right. Because the Klingons talk about how their gods were too much trouble. And so they killed them. <laughs> so they're misotheists. They hate their gods. Uh, and, and a misotheist, you know, hates God. Uh, and. It would appear, I mean, if you're saying you're the enemy of God, well, then then the speakers are misotheists. And that's the thing with the speakers. And that's another theme that goes on throughout uh, throughout this series is that the speakers, they don't write anything down and they just tell it to each other. And again, this is so that way God, you know, I, I guess can't strike again strike them down in jealousy over over their stories or something or over what they are they are achieving um, because she specifically says you know we live in cooperation and hide our stories so she they live in cooperation and she's saying that you know at the tower of babel god kept humanity from living in cooperation uh, out of some kind of jealousy which i've brought this point up before i've talked about this with the tower of babel it's a very weird bit of scripture because it sounds like god is afraid because he's he, he whoever he's talking to in in, you know, in that chapter in Genesis, was it like ch- chapter 12 or whatever? Or maybe chapter 11 when he's or I think it's chapter 12 when he's t- whoever he's talking to the angels, whoever it happens to be or some kind of galactic council like there is in the book of Job. God's saying it's like if we don't confuse their language, if we don't do something. They're going to be able to do anything. And he's talking about the humans. Humans are going to be able to do anything. And it smacks of fear. It's, it's very strange when you read it. Um, and <laughs> I mean, it's one of the things that I when I was younger, when I read it and like I read it with kind of a more critical eye that I was developing, thanks to Harlan Ellison. You know, I go, oh, wait a minute. That's like, how could God be afraid? Like, like this, this doesn't make any fucking sense. Um, and so clearly the speakers are, you know, kind of a, a, you know, an antidote to that, to where they live in cooperation, but they don't. You know, they don't write anything down and they don't make it so that way, I guess, somehow God can know what what they're doing and what they're kind of developing and everything. But Sypha constantly brings up, she says she thinks it's a failing that her people, that the speakers have not written things down. They should be writing things down because that allows you to build something even greater uh, or get like she does throughout season two of Castlevania, where she gets to, you know, learn new spells and all this various magic and everything and build on top of it, on top of, you know, effectively the shoulders of giants, you know, that being the Belmont legacy. And, you know, and, and she gets to do all these spells and everything. And she's realizing the advantage. Well, if you write it down, you know, other people get to access it uh, and build on top of it, uh, which is, you know, I, yeah. Anyway, w- wild stuff. <laughs> OK. In fact, it's pretty funny. I, I mentioned earlier how there's jokes about penises. There's a funny point where she's going she's reading through all these books in the gigantic Belmont Library. And there's a point where she's talking to Alucard and she says, she's like, I do have questions about Trevor's ancestors. I discovered an entire box of spells about penises. <laughs> and it's just, I, there's, there's lots of little, little jokes like that, that little and little jabs that keep going on. Um, but, you know, speaking of the magic, I mean, there's a point where, and this might be one of the most succinct and best descriptions of what magic, whether you believe it in or not, what it's supposed to really be, what it's really about. And, you know, uh, Sypha is talking about how she's going to intend for Dracula's castle to appear before them. And she's going to transport it there and lock it down, right? Keeping its engine from allowing it to transport to another part of the earth. And she says to, you know, and, and Alucard says something you're going to intend. And she she gives this quote. She says, that's all magic is, Alucard, changing things in accordance with my intent. Bam. Now that understanding that 
That is some really, that's, that is really high level shit. That and the quotes about God is some really high level shit as far as, you know, uh, concepts of magic or what sometimes get called black magic, uh, goes. Now, most people that actually, you know, would practice or believe in black magic, or if you read a lot of, you know, classic texts on the matter, um, it does seem pretty clear that in many ways you're talking about, you're actually talking about a science. Uh, or, or, you know, science of some kind that people didn't realize would actually just end up being science and they just confused it with magic and so on. I talked about a lot of this in my season one review of Castlevania. I do recommend that you listen back to that. Um, but yeah, again, there, there's some really, really, I, I know I keep saying it, but there's some high level shit being described in this show, uh, that I can't believe is actually being said or described in anything, in any medium whatsoever. Uh, and you could say that that's all very basic and you've heard it elsewhere. I don't, I don't think so. You know, I, I don't know where outside of something that's just trying to be Satanist. And this is not trying to be Satanist. The speakers are not describing themselves as Satanist at all. Um, I don't know many things where, where you're like openly hearing a character talking about uh, intent and talking about how being an enemy of God and, you know, like believing there is a God, but that you're actually the enemy of it. I mean, like, woo. <laughs> I mean, this is. <laughs> this is wild shit. And then to get into, you know, like the concept of the Adamic language, which this is not like a new idea, nor is it an original idea within Castlevania. Uh, you have what's called the language of the birds, uh, which is the or also known as the language of angels, which is widely considered like the original language uh, or, you know, within some of these like kind of very, very, very theoretical and fanciful uh, uh, texts over the years and that you've heard talked about within, you know, Kabbalah and some other uh, schools. And the language of the birds is also apparently what the what the angels speak. Of course, they conversed with Adam and Eve, if you believe the story of Genesis um, and, you know, maybe look at some of the little bit of extraneous material or some of what the Bible actually hints at happening within the Garden of Eden. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's an important thing to bring up because we talked about this with the user podcast. Uh, the the Adam and Eve story within Judaism itself. Okay. Uh, or within, uh, not within Judaism, within Torah, within the Old Testament, okay, whatever you want to call it, within the Bible, just don't call it the Hebrew Bible, it's insulting. Within the Bible, you know, if you, if you think the New Testament is valid, call it the Christian Bible, don't call it the Bible. Within that, like, you know, it's, it's rarely ever talked about. You know, like the, the whole the whole Adam and Eve and a lot of the creation story, it's rarely ever talked about. That's part of why in the user podcast, you know, that I was bringing up, um, you know, this is a very odd story. And, but, you know, Kabbalah and some other, uh, uh, I, I guess you could say, you know, texts outside of which granted the idea of the speakers is very much sounds a lot like the oral Torah, right? Where you don't write it down. You just share it through the priesthood and you pass it down through time until eventually, you know, of course, rabbinic Judaism did write down the oral Torah, you know, the Mishnah and so on. Um, but when you get into some other traditions based within or on Judaism, then, yeah, you start to find out about this whole like a lot of these wilder ideas of like an Adamic language or Enochian magic. Right. Of course, the character of Enoch from the Book of Enoch, uh, you know, and, and, and so on. Um, so there's yeah, there is a lot here. There are a lot of things being said. There is a lot of I don't want to say truth, but for some people, what is considered truth uh, is getting laced within this. That I have with all of these shows and, you know, I mean, animated or otalwise that you think of where, you know, they dalliance with magic or magic might even be kind of the central aspect of it and so on. Um, none of them have, shall we say, cut to the quick or cut to the chase, perhaps. I mean, both of those statements, they're, they're two different statements, but they're both true. As this show has, in my opinion, I mean, you get some things, you know, you get Yu-Gi-Oh that deals with a lot of Egyptian magic and stuff like this. But this is like going right to the fucking core. <laughs> you know, like it's wasting no time and and is laying out some very I mean, like I almost have to believe it's Warren Ellis. And again, it wouldn't be surprising because, like I said, many comic book writers, uh, you know, are, are are firmly into the occult and they are magicians. And I say that with respect. I don't say that as an insult or as like, oh, you know, I'm not holding up a cross here saying, go away from me, Satan, or something like that. It's ridiculous. No, come here, Satan, please. Hi, Dad. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, a lot to take in with Castlevania season two. I mean, there's tremendous action. The music. Oh, fuck. Trevor Morris. I thought the music was fine in season one. 
he took it to a whole new level in season two. And in fact, he brings in a lot of very classic themes throughout Castlevania's uh, video game history. And I was very pleased by that. And it's very emotional. It's super well done. Trevor Morris knocked it out of the park uh, music wise. I was just just wholly impressed with that. I want a soundtrack yesterday for this. I want it now just like i do for voltron legendary defender i want the fucking soundtrack for this i don't know if it's on spotify i'm gonna have to do a youtube search and see if i can find it because that's what i had to do I, I, I hate this so a lot of people are releasing music on spotify and they're not actually releasing an album at all that you can buy even though it, it comes together as an album on spotify that does not help me i want to own it god damn it okay i want to put it on my nas and have it accessible through all my different devices um so I need to see if the, perhaps they did that with Castlevania. I haven't looked into it, but that's what I had to do with, with Voltron Legendary Defender is I somebody fortunately ripped it from Spotify, ripped the soundtrack of Legendary Defender from Spotify and put it up on YouTube. And then, of course, I ripped that. Uh, so I might have to do that, see if they have it for Castlevania, because the music is just epic as fucking shit and heart wrenching at points. It just it hits all the notes, no pun intended. Um, and Trevor Morris just just really, really killed it with that. Uh, yeah. And the, the voice acting, I mean, the voice actors are just second to none. In fact, I'll tell you, I love I fucking love um, uh, the woman who's doing Saifa, uh, Alejandra Reynoso. I don't know if I pronounced her name exactly right, but she's like that. That accent, it sounds it's almost like Russian and Spanish at the same time. Like it has this, it's this really unique accent. And I think it's so sexy. Oh, it's so fucking hot, that accent. Uh, so I, I love that. And of course, Richard Armitage, it, it, you know, does does a great job as, as Trevor Belmont. Um, I mean, James Callis is Alucard. Phenomenal. Graham McTavish is Dracula. I mean, everybody involved, uh, even Matt Frewer. I mean, everybody involved is just is doing phenomenal. You know, like this is great, great voice acting. Some of the best voice acting I think that's ever been done. Um, I would love if in season three, if they could get Sam Witwer to do to do a voice on this, I would be beyond pleased uh, because I think, well, first off, I think Sam Witwer is one of like <laughs> I worship Sam Witwer. OK, <laughs> so many people think I hate men. Uh, no, I love Sam Witwer. <laughs> like, I love him like that. Oh, fuck. Is he so goddamn hot? And, and he is he is he's just he is the man. <laughs> anyway, I'd love for him to get in on, on season three because uh, he's a tremendous voice actor. Of course, most people you know may know him. He does the voice of Maul in the various animated Star Wars series, and he will do uh, Emperor Palpatine or Darth Sidious, depending on what you're talking about, uh, at various points when he is needed. And he does a tremendous job of that. And uh, Sam Witwer is just just phenomenal. So anyway, uh, yeah, season three, very excited for it. Uh, there, you know, I don't know what's going to come of it. Um, I don't know, you know, what we're going to get in it. I hope Warren Ellis is still on board. I haven't exactly heard that news yet. But whoever is lacing in the quote unquote black magic into this. Wow. Uh, I, I <laughs> within your own circles, I fear for you. But keep laying it out, man, because you're, you're laying out some heavy shit. <laughs> I mean, really, really heavy shit that I, that people don't even realize. And I can't even, uh, you know, I'm not even necessarily feeling the most comfortable describing. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people have asked me for like uh, speaking of Enochian and magic. A lot of people have asked me. I recorded an episode with Stephanie a long while back years ago, year, like five, six years ago. Uh, it was a special for Sovereign Tech that I was going to release independently. That was about the Book of Enoch. And every time I think about releasing it, I listen to it and I just go, no, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I want to, but then at the same time, like I, I really don't, not that I'm afraid people are going to think I'm crazy. I just don't exactly feel comfortable doing that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> so if anyone's thinking, well, yeah, wow. He talked about Enochian magic. He should release his book of Enoch thing. If the day comes where I feel comfortable, I, I will do it. Okay, I still have it. You know, it's 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 a simple. I forget how long it went. Maybe forty five, maybe an hour, um, maybe someday. So don't ask me about that now. Okay, <laughs> when I feel comfortable, if I ever feel comfortable releasing it, I will do so. But anyway, there you go. Uh, there's our review of Castlevania season two. Uh, like I said, it is absolutely the best TV show out there right now. Um, it, season two was tremendous. Totally took what was built on season one and just ran with it and took it to all new heights. Uh, I expect the same from season three. There's plenty to get into. Uh, you know, again, the, the show, even without, I think season one had some actual sex to it, even without sex in season two, which I would have loved. Um, 
you know, season three can bring that in, but it's still, I found it to be really sexy. I love the buildup of the love story uh, between Trevor and Sypha. I thought that that was well done. I wouldn't have minded if there was a love triangle between Sypha, Trevor, and Alucard. That would have been very, very interesting to explore. Maybe we'll get that in season three. Um, I don't know. They, they can take this wherever they want. Uh, they don't have to stick to the game so much, but I do love that they are bringing in so many elements um, from the from the different games within the Castlevania series, because that is a very, no pun intended, storied tradition that only the uh, the speakers would be able to really appreciate, I think. <laughs> so uh, easily, I mean, Castlevania is one of my favorite game series of all time. Um, I'm, I'm such a fan. I you know, I get the games for whatever console I, I happen to have. Um, I'm not the biggest fan. I'll admit, I'll just say this quickly. Like if you're looking to play a more modern Castlevania game, I would stop at what they did for the PlayStation two, like with lament of innocence and the sequel to that, which were great. And there was a great trilogy, actually a tremendous trilogy for the Nintendo DS, uh, that I would recommend that you jump on, but that's where I would stop. I really didn't like the Lords of shadow, uh, uh, games like the, the newer kind of reboot that was full 3d, um, that Konami did and that included mirrors of fate and so on. I played them, but, and, and the first one, I mean, like it was a good game, but it, it, I don't know. It just didn't feel right as like Castlevania, maybe because I've been playing Castlevania so long. I don't know. It didn't translate well. Like, you, you know, you think of Zelda where, you know, Link, translated very well to 64 bit right with the ocarina of time and he tra- or transfer transferred very well to 3d um, mario did a f- tremendous job of transferring to 3d i don't think the belmonts do such a great job of that um there is a certain style to this i mean there's there, there's a whole reason that they call it you know they call these games metroidvania right because metroid really started it uh you know more of the open world aspects of this 2d kind of style but Castlevania is really what would in many ways perfected the formula. And of course, you know, Metroid would do a great job of going to 3D with the Metroid Prime uh, series. But yeah, Castlevania, I think my opinion really should stick to 2D and, and should stay there. And it's part of what gives the series its longevity. Or, I mean, even if you want to make it 3D, keep it kind of 2D in, in, in aspects like like Lament of Innocence wasn't exactly a 3D game, right? Not as the way that you encountered the world so much. Not exactly. So anyway, but but yeah, check those out if you really want to play some Castlevania. I would I wouldn't play like the the stuff you could buy on Steam pretty much. Okay, that that's my that's my point. Um, I would stick with the classics, you know, and if you got to get I'll tell you one of the best game systems you can buy right now is you buy a get a get a PlayStation 2 slim, put free McBoot on that thing. Okay, free McBoot is a software Put that, get that on a memory card, get that on there, and it turns into like the ultimate gaming machine. And be, partly because you could also go to like Cool ROMs and you could download Lament of Innocence and the other, you know, the other, uh, a lot of the other games within the Castlevania series. You could get Symphony of the Night. You could get, you know, all this different stuff. And then you could, you know, slap all the, the SNES ROMs you want to on a CD, pop that into your PlayStation 2 Slim, use Free McBoot, and you could play all of the, you know, Super Nintendo versions or the Nintendo versions and everything. I mean, it, it's really the ultimate game system, even better than a computer in many ways, in my opinion, is the PlayStation to, uh, you know, with free McBoot, uh, you know, soft modded on it. So jump on that. But anyway, yeah, Castlevania season two, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to give it a number ranking, whatever the highest is, it gets the highest. If it's nine, if it, you know, if it's out of 10, it gets a 10. If it's out of five, it gets a five. The only thing that could make it better, and I'm not going to hold it against it is if there was like some rampant orgy or something within it, but other, but I'm not going to hold that against it. Doesn't need it. It worked very well. And that the character of Sypha was sexy enough. Fucking a, <laughs> Anyway, so check it out if you haven't yet. Of course, I kind of spoiled a lot of aspects to it, but there's still so much to see. And I didn't even get into a lot of the jokes and everything that you just have to hear and you'll fall over laughing. Uh, It's so great. Uh, So, yeah, Castlevania season two. Check it out. Can't wait for season three. And that'll be it for this review episode. I will see all of you on the other side.